Welcome back to the Arizona Wildlife Federation podcast. My name is Michael and I am your host. And it is beautiful outside right now. Spring is in the air. And it is a great time to be out in the woods enjoying all of the life around you, including birds. And that is what this podcast episode is about. We are joined by Tice and Ginny from Audubon. You'll learn more about them coming up here shortly. And we're going to talk all about birding and bird watching. And I'll tell you what, um, you know, for for the hunters and anglers out there, and I'm, I'm, I'm addressing them because we do a lot of hunting and angling shows, and that's, uh, that's a lot of our listenership. <clears throat> I will tell you that I... Uh, I, I hunted and angled as uh, as a child and as a young man, and then I got away from it for a long time, and uh, didn't get back into it until my adult years. During that time, though, I was still out chasing wildlife. I was still out in the woods. I was still out on the water, and uh, I will just say that I have gone down a lot of rabbit holes in my life, whether that be flora or fauna. I've spent a great deal of time learning about the natural world and and ecosystems func- the functioning ecosystems within and that's that's been birds it's been crayfish it's been plants it's it's been reptiles and amphibians and all this has done for me is made me a better outdoorsman a better naturalist and, and a better hunter um so so i think it's very important to just lift your head up, uh, notice everything else around you. And I say that because, you know, as, as a hunter, <clears throat> it's really easy to get tunnel vision because uh, I'm saying this from personal experience, you know, and maybe I'm not speaking for everybody, but uh, you get so focused on your quarry and, and your goal that you tend to miss. You tend to miss a lot around you. And, uh, there, and therefore, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for all of those years I spent pursuing wildlife uh, in other fashions, you know, whether that be a camera or just a field guide and a pen and paper. But birding was a huge part of that for me. And it, man, it's just, just as exciting as, as, as pursuing animals with, with a rifle or a bow. Um, you, you still have targets. You still have, you know, species that you're after. You still have to learn habitats. You still have to explore new places new mountain ranges new rivers i mean it is it is fantastic so so you know i'm mentioning this for all of you that might not think birding is for you i'm here to tell you you're probably mistaken because it is a kick um and i have done it my whole life Uh, i might do it more indirectly and coincidentally when i'm out doing other things now but uh, i absolutely love it um you know, we just had hummingbirds show up yesterday, robins a few days ago. I heard the first of Pitonax flycatcher in my yard the other day. So I'm getting juice for this stuff. And uh, if you have any interest at all, this is a great place to start because I'm going to go over with Tice and Jenny um, everything you need to know uh, about birding and to get started. So that's, that's whether that's optics and gear our techniques. Uh, you're going to get it all here. So please stick around and enjoy this episode. It's a good one. Before we get into that, though, let's go over just a couple announcements from our great conservation organizations in the state of Arizona. Okay. First, from the Arizona Antelope Foundation. The Arizona Antelope Foundation is pleased to confirm that our 2023 Antelope Hunter Clinic 
will be held on Saturday, June 10th at the Arizona Game and Fish Department headquarters located at 5000 West Greenway Road in Phoenix. Registration will begin at 11 a.m. with the workshop to run from 12 to 4. The cost is $20 per, per participant. For additional details, visit the Arizona Antelope Federation website at azantelope.org. And I will have a link for you, of course, in the show notes there. So if you're one of those lucky few that drew an antelope tag this year, this is a great place for you to get started and get educated up so you can make the most of that. All right, next. Um, this is out uh, in June, June 10th, 2023. The Arizona Elk Society, uh, is, uh, the White Mountain Chapter is having their eighth annual banquet. And I'll get you more information on this as we get closer to the date. But I did want to let you know that tickets are on sale now. Please look for a link in the show notes and get your tickets there. Okay, one more. Um, and this one's kind of not fair because it is sold out. But the Arizona Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is having a fundraising wild game tasting dinner on April 27th at Greenwood Brewery Brewing Company in downtown Phoenix. Uh, let's see. We are going to have Chef Brett Vibber of Wild Arizona Cuisine. Uh, cooking up some exquisite dishes that will contain dove, javelina, and coos deer. Now, I'm, I'm really just telling you this because I'm going to be there and I'm hoping you got tickets and, and I hope to get to run into you. Um, I, will, I will not be, unfortunately, uh, dining, but I will be helping out with the event. This thing sold out fast, like in a couple days. I couldn't believe it. So I hope you're there. I hope I get to run into you. And if not, maybe look for this down the road and uh, yeah, we can try to open it up to even more participants and, uh, and you'll get your opportunity then. All right. With that, I will see you after this show. Thanks. All right. Um, today... I am joined by two, I don't know, what would I call you guys, birding professionals, something along those lines, two, two, two birders that also, uh, you know, have, have important roles in, within that community and the conservation community. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with just, uh, introductions. So let's, let's go with you, Jenny. Can you tell me who you are, you know, where you're from and, and, and you know, how, how, how are you involved in, in birds and bird watching? Sure. Yeah. I'm Jenny McFarland. Um, I work for the Tucson Audubon Society and I do a lot of different projects for the Tucson Audubon Society. I do live in Tucson, <laughs> being working for the Tucson Audubon Society and have been here for well over 20, 25 years in Tucson. And I have a really fun job where I get to do bird watching a fair amount in, in my work and because we do a lot of community science bird survey work. And we also just do a lot of outreach about birds and birding. So I get to work a lot within the birding community. Well, thank you for being here. Tice, how about you? Yeah, well, Michael, we've done some other programs together. and We have. Of course, I had a full career with the Arizona Game and Fish Department mm -hmm. and then um, got a job with what was Audubon, Arizona. It's now Audubon Southwest. So we're both the states of Arizona and New Mexico. I'm their director of bird conservation, and I've been in this gig for over 18 years, and have wow. turned myself into a complete bird nerd. <laughs> nice. See, Tice, you also serve as a president of the Arizona Elk Society, correct? That is correct. I'm president of their board, so I still have interest in the big game animals. And actually, one of my great um, interests is linking the habitat 
work and habitat conservation work of big game animals to the birds that occur in those same landscapes. That is fantastic. Um, I, I, I love I love people like you that can have a foot in both camps and see the big picture. Um, it, yeah, I have to chuckle when I go to bird meetings, it's a parking lot full of Subarus. And when I go to a big game meeting, it's a parking lot full of three quarter ton trucks. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I live in both worlds as well. Um, I mean, primarily as an, as an adult with a family that can't afford to do everything I want to do in the outdoors. I primarily hunt and fish these days. Because, you know, it gets me out. Um, I, I'm still coincidentally birding when I'm doing this. And, uh, you know, I bring a tangible good home to my family and I'm contributing to that model of conservation. But um, I am still burning while I'm out there. I'm always paying attention. And uh, I like to I like to tell folks sometimes, um, and I'm sure there's some birders that probably won't like me saying this, but I find the two endeavors of hunting and birding very similar because, I get the same excitement when I find a new life species of bird or a target as I do when, when I'm successful in harvesting a, a deer. Um, same excitement. I think it comes from some deep evolutionary part of our brain where we like to pursue things. But No, it's a great observation, Michael. And Jenny can probably speak to this as well, is that when you're out trying to find a life bird, mm -hmm. it's very much like a hunting adventure because you're trying to get into the right habitat you have to consider the bird's behavior so you don't startle it and get into the right position to actually get a good viewing of the bird. Sure. And Jenny might have some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I have observed that as well, watching groups of birders trying to find a rare bird. And you just sort of have to stalk them with your camera, though, mm -hmm. not <laughs> stalk them with your camera to try to bag a good photo. And it's funny, I, I was not raised in a sportsman's house or anything. We never did hunting when I was, I was a very urban child. But when I went to the University of Arizona to get my uh, wildlife conservation degree, there was a lot of classes we had to take because that degree was dual, both for game and non-game sort of um, education. So we had to do a lot of classes that had to do with game. And I remember uh, thinking, I'm never going to use this. Why do I need to know this? And I'm so glad they made me learn it because, you know, Tyson and I work closely together on the Arizona Important Bird Areas program, which its main supporter is Arizona Game and Fish. So having all that base knowledge that I didn't think I was going to need when I was, you know, 19 sitting in class has actually been very helpful and helped me really understand how game uh, the game world and hunting does actually support a huge amount of conservation, bird conservation, uh, pay the most for bird conservation, which is something I do talk to birders about whenever I come. Yeah. Up. You know, like I, like I mentioned, having a foot in both camps, uh, you know, I, I, I use the terms consumptive and non-consumptive, although I don't think those are great terms. Cause I think even non-consumptive outdoor user groups definitely have an impact on our wild places and wildlife. But, um, well, I'll tell you what, like, I didn't have you ladies on here to talk about hunting, but I do a lot of that. So it's always, you know, a lot of podcasts there too. But I do want to make one more um, observation that I think is interesting, you know, whether it be accurate or not. And again, it's one of those that some people might disagree with, but I, I find it interesting. So the, the term trophy hunting is, is a loaded term, right? Uh, it brings up a lot of bad images in a lot of folks' minds, um, and rightfully so in some situations. But for me, it's, it's, it's a much more nuanced um, and kind of fuzzy gray term. You know, um, I hunt primarily for food, for meat. Um, but when I go to bed at night before a elk hunt, I'm not dreaming of little, little spike bulls. I'm dreaming of big old, you know, mature animals. And I, I like to associate that to birders. So a birder, 
first visiting Southeast Arizona and looking for an elegant trogan, are they wanting to see a juvenile or, or a female? Is that what they're dreaming about the night before? No, they're dreaming about a big, fully mature, colorful male. So I think there's some some interesting yeah. points there that is a much longer discussion than the, you know we, we have or what we're here for today. But I just think it's an interesting observation. And yeah, not everything's black and white, you know? It's serious birders I liken to collectors. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially with the advent of photography, I know individuals where their goal is to have a photographic collection, yeah. a good one, mm-hmm. of all the birds they've seen. So they're always trying to improve on their photograph. Yeah, there's some definitely some deep rabbit holes in birding, and we'll, yes. we'll get to those for sure. But <laughs> all right, let's let's kind of just start with it. Well, let me tell you how, how I, I got to the, uh, the Arizona. I got here because of birding. Um, when I was probably in my early twenties, I got with a buddy and we both happened to know a little bit about birds just cause we were both naturalists and, and that kind of got us talking and, and probably like a lot of young males might do anyway, not, not to generalize there, but we got into raptors cause raptors are cool. You know, they're, <laughs> they're predators. And then, but soon thereafter we were out there trying to, you know, pick apart, you know, little sparrows in the field and identify them. And it just grew and grew and grew. And next thing you know, we're taking trips. This is back in Missouri, but next thing you know, we're taking trips out of the state, you know, looking for specific species and things. And that led us to Arizona. And this has probably been over 30 years ago. So it's been about a week in Arizona, trekking around, looking for birds. Um, got a lot of the, the elf owls and things that were just, you know, a complete mystery to me back in Missouri. And, uh, it, this place stayed with me for so long that, uh, I knew I just had to get back here sometime. And, uh, I was with my, 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 who was my wife now, my girlfriend at the time. And we were both out of college and no responsibilities. And, uh, I wanted to come to Arizona. So we came out here and the plan was to spend a couple of years. Cause I really wanted, it's such a diverse state. I wanted time to explore it. And that was primarily for herpetofauna, reptiles and amphibians and birds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I came out here and those two years have now turned into 11 and a home and children and everything else. And I couldn't be happier. I, I just love it here. But, uh, so yeah, birding literally brought me to Arizona in the first place. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, let's talk about a, a lot of these podcasts I like to do kind of from the ground up. So kind of one-on-one level, you know, and then, then maybe next, next year we can get together and do a little more advanced birding podcast if you, if you guys are up to it, but let's talk about first off, why is Arizona such a special place to the birding community? Anybody well, can jump in there. I mean, from from a biodiversity perspective, um, Arizona is uniquely located geographically. We have representation of all, the four major deserts in North America. We are right at the merger of the Sierra Madre and the subtropical forest elements from Mexico and the Rocky Mountain elements from the north. Mm-hmm. And so where this really kind of explodes is in southeastern Arizona and what we call the Sky Islands. Each one of those mountain ranges has unique um, characteristics that are different from the others. And so even with the birds, so the Chiricahua's have the Mexican chickadee. It's the only mountain range in the state where you're going to find that bird. 
It also has the Nayarit red squirrel. It's the only place in the United States where you're going to see that animal. I haven't heard it called by that name yet. Yeah, that's a more accurate description of it. Yeah, yeah. So what we have in terms of biogeography and the distribution of animals, Mm -hmm. and this includes the birds, is there's kind of a sweep out of uh, the southeast and the Midwest into Mexico, and then some of these birds come back up through Arizona. So we have cardinals. California Mm -hmm. does not. Yeah, no, Tyson's exactly right. I mean, Arizona is such an amazing place. First of all, it's a really big state, right? So you have all these just different habitats. You have like, you know, the canyon country to the north and then, you know, the Sonoran Desert habitat and all these different deserts coming and merging and overlapping in Arizona. And Southeast Arizona really is an amazing place. There's tons of bird species that, and other things too, plants, mammals, tons of other, you know, biota, that the only place you're going to see them in the United States is Arizona. So there's several hummingbird species, so like violet crown hummingbird or lucifer hummingbird, where they're very difficult to find in the United States. And Southeast Arizona is where you can find them. And that's especially true for some of these headliner birds, like you mentioned, like elegant trogon. And why this becomes relevant for birding is because many of these, you know, all these species, elegant trogons are only in Southeast Arizona for the United States, but they're all through West Mexico in proper habitat. But the American Birding Association is the main group that facilitates people's life lists. And one of the primary life lists that United States-based birders look at is what they call the ABA North American list. So that's the list where they're trying to get, you know, what people will say to each other, birders will say, what's your ABA list number? And that literally excludes Mexico. Mexico is not considered part of the ABA birding area. And so if you want an elegant trogon on your ABA North America list, you have to get it in the United States, which means you have to come to Arizona. So that is a, a major sort of really in the weeds birding, bird nerd answer <laughs> as to why um, Arizona can be so special for birders and does actually generate a fair amount yeah. of tourism into Arizona specifically right. for birding. Yeah, no, it's an absolute mecca for birders. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that, that same same diversity in birds goes across the board with other species too, like uh, Tice mentioned the, the fox squirrel down there and it herps. I mean, the sky islands have, have all have their own species of rattlesnakes. Uh, I'm, I'm generalizing there, but, um, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And it is a special, special place. Uh, and probably Southeast Arizona. I have a lot of favorite places. I mean, I, I love the piney woods of Georgia and North Florida. I love the Everglades. I love the Appalachians. I love the, I just dig it all. I get excited about all of it. Um, but Southeast Arizona absolutely is is on the top of that list. I mean, it, it is a special place. Well, Southeast Arizona and what's called the boot heel of New Mexico, which mm-hmm. is basically Southwest New Mexico, just kind of an extension of the same yeah. habitat. Down into Mexico, that whole region, if you read the books on ecosystems and bioregions, that geography is a global biodiversity hotspot mm-hmm. yeah. comparable to other places like the Serengeti or, you know, the forests of Brazil. Yeah. It's got that biological diversity that really ranks it up there. Yeah. And so our important bird area program tries to identify as much as we can at a global scale. Mm-hmm. particularly in this region, but we have other globally designated important bird areas 
uh, throughout the state. A good example is Grand Canyon National Park. And very few people realize it, but they have one of the highest densities of nesting Mexican spotted owl in the park. In the park. But the birds nest down on the first wall of the canyon. Really? I didn't and know And then that. they come up and find their food up on top. Wow. I know. Who who knew? Yeah. So <laughs> huh. that's great. <laughs> it is uh, kind of cool because we've got a protected place, the park, that has these densities of spotted owl, peregrine falcon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got the pinon jay out mm-hmm. in the lower desert pinion pine of the park. So we've got numerous bird species that flourish within the boundaries of Grand Canyon National Park. Wow. You know, it took me four trips to the to the canyon before I finally got a condor. Exactly. Um, and then when yeah. I got there, I got like 12 that day. I mean, I stepped right. out of the car and they were flying over my head in the parking <laughs> lot. But Yeah. Yeah, that was the no-brainer bird to give the place global designation, sure. but I like to name these other birds as well. Wow. So to stress that it's not just one charismatic megafauna species like right. the condor. <laughs> well, Jenny, you talked about listing. Um, and I don't I think it's hard to talk about birding and birders without talking about listings. Let's go ahead and get it out of the way. What what are you talking about with lists? Yeah, so what I'm talking about is many birders, and it's by no means all. Some birders don't do this at all, but but many birders, especially I would say kind of like old guard birders, it's it was very much an extreme sport a little bit, right? Where people were keeping yeah. score. So, and, and I do this to an extent. Um, I, I do have a life list um, and a lot of birders do, and it sort of just keeps track of, of all the birds you've seen, right? The different species you've, you've seen. And it's very exciting when you get a new one and there's a lot of ways to do this. There's no one way to do it. So some people will do, you know, their global list and that's all the birds they've seen in their entire lifetime, or you'll break it down by region. So uh, some people do, you know, like I said, that ABA North America region is a really popular one. Uh, some people do it by state or country. Like my, oh, I need this bird for my state list. It may have been a bird they've seen in another state, but they want it for Arizona. Like a rarity mm-hmm. has shown up in Arizona. They may have seen it where it's more common, but it's a rarity here. So I need it for my state list. Some people even go so far as to do county listing. Okay. So some people are really into this. My partner is a professional birding guide and he is a county mm-hmm. lister <laughs> where he's like, we got to go. I was like, you saw that bird last year. He's like, yeah, but I don't have it from Maricopa <laughs> County. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. So there, there is different levels of commitment people can do. And it does keep things really, I think, yeah. fun and, and interesting. And another way people often do listing is mm-hmm. by year. So the birds they've seen for the year. And I find I do do that. I, I just put all my sightings into eBird and it kind of keeps track of it for me. And eBird is a, a free online website you can use to create mm-hmm. bird lists of what you're seeing when you're out birding. But I do like doing year listing because that means January 1st, even the most common birds are super yeah. exciting, right? It's like, oh, I saw, I don't think I had, the white-winged doves are back for spring. I don't, I don't have that yet on my year list. Tick, it's mm-hmm. on my year list. So that's generally what listing is. It's sort of scorekeeping right, with bird right. watching. How about you, Tice? What kind of list do you keep or do you keep them? Yeah, I, I use eBird also. And we can talk about that some more mm-hmm. because eBird is emerging as a huge kind of a wiki site, if you will, for bird records that um, professional bird biologists are using that data set uh-huh. because it's so big 
you can actually work with it and come up with trend lines for many species that don't um, record well for breeding bird survey routes or Christmas bird counts. And so I would encourage you, Michael, if you don't have an eBird account, to get one so the next time you're out hunting, you put that bird list into eBird. Okay, I will, and I because, don't, in um, full disclosure. It's really These fun. are powerful data sets. Yeah. And our Arizona field ornithologist group actually has places in the state that haven't been e-birded much mm-hmm. and encouraging people to go to those places and submit the records. Yeah. And, and I'm finding it really valuable as we try to figure out conservation strategy, especially for some of our desert species mm-hmm. that can be hard to find, like uh, Leconte's thrasher. Yeah. And uh, so every time you get an eBird tick on that bird, that gives you a record of where it occurs. Yeah. And that's valuable. No, it is valuable. Those um, data sets are So are for huge. me personally, I have that list. So um, I kind of look at my annual list and I don't pay much attention to trying to populate it. <laughs> gotcha. So, you know, when I go on a big trip out of country, of course, I get new birds. Well. And it, I kind of keep a yard list um but i i'm not i won't chase after a bird mm-hmm. so when we had a really rare what was that mockingbird that blue mockingbird that showed up blue yeah, mockingbird i did not yeah. go down there to find it <laughs> well you you have a pretty broad swath of, of interest there tice and i imagine right. if, if you took them all to the nth degree you, you wouldn't be able to keep up yeah, so what I do like to do, so if I've got a archery elk hunt and I'm sitting in my blind, I will uh, bird while I'm sitting there. Yeah. And I'll put that into the eBird records. That's great. Well, in full disclosure, um, I keep lists for just about everything. Um, and I have slowed down on it uh, just because I started going to the tropics and it got really overwhelming. So I, I have a couple of years worth of updates to do, but... Um, I, I would, it would even take it to the point where I, I just, it was like the biotic lists of Michael Craven. So, and I would print them out into a booklet and I would have mammals, uh, freshwater fishes, birds, um, even crayfishes. I went down a deep crayfish rabbit hole back East. Um, and I just, I love chasing new species. It, it takes me to new places. It gets me into new habitats. Um, and you know, you get that, that excitement, that thrill of the chase. So, so I completely get it. Um, and I don't do yearly lists. I definitely do a yard list, you know, for all wildlife in the yard. And I get very excited when I get a new species, but, uh, it's fun. I, uh, I, I, I don't do annual. I, I basically just do North American and then global, but yeah. with birds, but yeah, I love it. I think it adds a whole another layer of excitement. Um, you know, there's, there's these trout challenges, these wild and native trout challenges I do now where you you get to go, like my little boy and I went to Utah, we drove around the entire state, caught all the native cutthroat trout species. And not only do you get that satisfaction of chasing those those new species in those beautiful places, but with this, you also get swag. You get a little coin and a diploma that says you did it. So it just, just adds to the excitement of it all. But yeah, I, I love all this stuff, you know, including birds. But... <laughs> Yeah, so, I'd, I'd like us to talk a little bit about uh, an awful lot of the outreach that we do with um, uh, yeah, I've got to get rid of the phone call. Sorry. Um, 
that we do with just the casual birder uh-huh. and, and a lot of people that are new to our state. So somebody who comes to Arizona brand new from someplace else, a lot of their first reaction is, gee whiz, there aren't any colorful birds, especially if they live in Phoenix or Tucson. And, and so it takes some, um, I guess, paying more attention. Mm-hmm. So like the Verdon, tiny little guy, yeah. builds cool nests, and it's got this beautiful yellow face that most people don't notice. Uh, it just looks like a little brown bird. But if you put binoculars on it, boom, out jumps that yellow. Yeah. And even our house finches have color. Uh, so these are common birds for our desert yards. And then if you start putting out like the, the thistle seed, you'll mm-hmm. get the goldfinches. And so you can bring colorful birds into your yard with a little bit of thought. And of course, if you plant native pollinator plants, now you're bringing in the hummingbirds. Yeah, we and got our first sure yesterday here. And is humming their bird, the most mm-hmm. common. Um, but if you're successful with a diversity of plants, you might start getting costas and black chin. And down where you are, Jenny, in uh, Tucson, you get the broad build. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they're beautiful, just resplendent birds. These hummingbirds are great. And yeah, Tyson's right. Even these really common ones like Anna's that you get pretty easily into mm-hmm. urban yards that have some nectar producing plants or a couple of feeders. These males are gorgeous. Their whole head is iridescent, rosy pink. And they do these wonderful sort of yeah. breeding flight displays in the early spring. And they're just fantastic little animals. And, you know, we get tons and tons of birds in Southeast Arizona that are so fun to look at. And with putting just a little bit of care and thought into your yard, like Tice is talking about, a few native plants, a little bit of sort of structure mm-hmm. in your vegetation, you can get, you know, northern cardinals hanging out in your yard and, you know, gambles quail running around if you're talking about Tucson or Phoenix, sort of in the Sonoran Desert habitat. And just tons of birds will come into these urban centers with a little bit of, you know, good habitat creation. Yeah, I got my first gambles quail shoot 11 years ago at a Starbucks in Phoenix, and I was <laughs> absolutely <laughs> blown away. I was so excited. Right. But, Well, that's the other fun thing is anybody who comes here to visit our list of desert birds, they're all life birds for somebody who's never been to the Southwest. We have a lot of, a lot of Sonoran desert specialties that you can just get in town, you know? So it it is, it's a very exciting place for, for a birder or a naturalist to visit for the first time, for sure. Well, what about seasons? Um, You know, I've been, I've, like I said, I got my first hummingbird up here in the mountains yesterday. Um, so right. how, how do we, dif- back. yep. How do we differentiate seasons and, and how, how so, does that relate to getting out looking for birds? I kind of, I think, let me talk about the desert first, because okay. I think our desert gets underappreciated in terms of having true seasons. Mm-hmm. And so it starts in March. And especially if we have a wet year, like we did, March is the, um, the bloom the poppies, the lupins, the owl clovers, uh, all of those little annual plants that will come to life if there's enough moisture. Then we get into April, and I call April the yellow month. This is when the the brittle bush, I mean, whole slopes will be covered in brittle bush, and the palo verdes are starting to bloom right now, Mm -hmm. and the acacia. 
March is a little more subtle. I call that the uh, kind of the lavender month. That's when the um, ironwood blooms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that really subtle, smoky lavender color to their blossoms. And, um, and then late May into June, that's the white month, the, pal- the, uh, the um, flowers of the saguaro. And then in later June, all these uh, cacti, the fruits ripen, the saguaro. I, l- I love the way you're putting this, Tice. I've never yeah. heard it laid out so, like this. So you just have this continuum. Mm-hmm. And, and the um, white-winged doves are back now. Mm-hmm. And um, I really think of them as seasonal. So they're back right now. They're going to uh, eat the fruit on the uh, saguaro. Uh, although we have white-winged dove that will colonial nest along our rivers, they are also a saguaro nesting specialist. Yeah. And Jenny, I'm sure you can speak to this when you do the, the, the surveys of our desert birds that you'll get the yeah. white wing as well as um, the elfowl. They've just come back too. And they're, they're really fun. And like you mentioned, your hummingbirds. Mm-hmm. So broadtail hummingbird came through my yard a couple of weeks ago, headed for your yard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Headed north. So <clears throat> that's the desert. And then the birds themselves, you know, people ask, well, when, when's migration or when's breeding season? These are hard questions to answer. Mm-hmm. So for our wintering birds, probably November to early March is all the waterfowl, the sandhill cranes, mm-hmm. uh, birds that we had a huge influx of American robins into the desert this year. And I don't know what that was. It might have been those um, atmospheric rivers that were sweeping through further north, mm-hmm. pushed some of these species south. Because usually those robins are in huge numbers up there in northern Arizona. Yeah, I, we just saw the, the first ones a couple of days ago. Yeah, but I had robins in my yard for the first time. <laughs> Wow. In 30 years in Phoenix. Yeah, there's a lot this winter. It was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> we had cedar waxwings, too. A lot of cedar waxwings throughout yeah. urban Tucson I've never seen winter. a waxwing in and that's, Arizona. I mean, we usually get some in the winter, but we had far more than usual. Yeah. So that's kind of fun with our seasons is you get this variation year to year, especially if you're paying attention to things like the birds. You can really see these variations that happen. And I actually really enjoy the seasons of Arizona and Southern Arizona, especially where people will say who have moved here from other parts of the country, oh, you don't have seasons. And I think what they really mean is you don't have a lot of dramatic fall Mm -hmm. color change, which is kind of true. It doesn't really happen that much in Southern Arizona, but we do have beautiful seasons. We have a lovely spring in the Sonoran Desert, as Tice described, and it can be kind of brief sometimes, and some years are better than others, depending on how much winter rain we got. But they, they are beautiful, if not short, and they do work in these lovely chapters, as Tice described. And then we go into our summer, which many people view, I think, correctly as the you know Arizona summer, especially in southern Arizona, as being sort of in two parts. You have the first part of summer, like hot June, dry. which is very hot and, and pretty darn dry. But then 
you know, in July into August, our monsoonal season starts, which is sort of the second part of summer. And it's totally different where we get, you know, the humidity goes up, you get um, these storms moving in from the south nearly every day in a good monsoon season. And you get sort of afternoon rains throughout different parts of southeast Arizona and southern Arizona and up into Phoenix pretty much pretty much daily in a, in a good season. But it'll just rain different parts mm-hmm. throughout the day. And then you get this sort of second bloom that happens where many plants sort of wait for that summer rains to bloom. And we actually get many bird species that turn up for that, for that abundance. We have species that don't even migrate into Arizona for the most part until June. So these are things like yellow-billed cuckoo or like varied bunting late in May um, or desert purple martins that show up in May. And they're coming for this almost like second spring mm-hmm. you often hear of the the monsoonal abundance. And it really rains a lot in the Sky Island mountain ranges during this time. So in the summer, the, the mountains especially get a lot of rain. And that creates this beautiful, almost, you know, wildflower meadow season up in the Sky Island mountain ranges which is really important for migrating hummingbirds. So as you move through into late summer, because monsoon season can last into September sometimes, and that sort of segues us into fall, where then fall migration starts, and you start seeing rufous hummingbirds coming through Arizona heading south, especially into the Sky Island region where all these flowers are blooming from the summer rains. You see them moving through southern Arizona as early as like sort of late July into August. They start their migration very early. So I always think of that as kind of the beginning of, of fall, of autumn, is the hummingbirds starting to move south, which is actually summer, but it, it does sort of kick off our fall migration. And we do have a pretty absolutely sort of stunning fall migration that can happen where you get these um, you get these phenomena of things like molt migration mm-hmm. happening. And what this is, is so if, if you're birding in southern Arizona and it's sort of late monsoon season, and suddenly you'll notice there's western kingbirds everywhere, like they're hanging out along the road, they're in sort of the grasslands at the base of the Sky Islands. And what's happening is Western kingbirds have all migrated south from throughout the west and are congregating in southeast Arizona to take advantage of the the food yeah. abundance created by the summer monsoon rains, you know, into fall. And they all congregate in southern Arizona and they molt. They hang out for a month or two or, you know, a little over a month. And they'll literally molt their feathers in this space where there's a lot of food and insects that they can catch. And then once they're all done with that, they continue their migration south. So we do get these lovely fall migration congregations. And then that segues into winter. And I feel like we have a rather long winter season, especially in terms of the birds, like in a really good way. So around October, the sandhill cranes will migrate down. A lot of our, our wintering species start to uh, return uh, in October. The chestnut-colored longspurs, which are a little grassland bird, uh, start to congregate in the really good grassland habitat. And they usually stay until about mm-hmm. February when they start to head north again. So it's a pretty long sort of winter birding season. And then that goes right back into uh, you know, February and then March kicks off again with our, our especially in the desert with our yeah. spring again. So it's it's really a lovely seasonal se- um, seasonal changes, but you have to be they're not as obvious as you know the big fall color changes of the east, but but they are just right. as lovely. Yeah, I like to think of winter as a really good time for new birders to get started because things are pretty stable, you know. Yeah. Um, then springtime is just exciting. Um, and you can literally, you know, you can see anything, you know, cause you, you have birds flying across the country, you know? So, you know, here in my, you know, monotypic ponderosa pine yard, which is usually pretty limited on the number of species, I pay very close attention this time of year because, cause who knows what could show up. 
But then fall, I feel like falls, at least, you know, referring back to the East where warblers were, were huge. Um, fall was always a little tougher because a lot, a lot of those warblers are not in their breeding plumage and, and a little harder to identify. But, you know, therein lies Western challenges. Western warblers are a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Now, we got yeah. some good ones, though. We do. Yeah, we do. Wilson's, <laughs> I mean, October, <clears throat> Wilson's warblers are coming through. Mm-hmm. And you'll see them up in the pine forest and those little drainages. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping my eyes They're open. so cute. Bright yellow with their little black caps. They're such cute birds. We have some really nice warblers. Red like red-faced warblers. Yeah. Stunning bird that you get yeah. up right. in the mountains. Painted red yeah, stars. Gorgeous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, great so, birds. Yeah, we get some really magnificent birds um, that are kind of in that transition up to the mixed conifer, the ponderosa pine, mm-hmm. either in the Sky Islands or up where you live around Flag as well. Right. So, yeah, it's. Um, I wanted to talk too about our grasslands. Um, a lot of people are just blown away if they come into the San Rafael Valley. And they see that expanse of grassland. It looks like the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And actually, it is an extension of short grass prairie, uh, mid-grass prairie. And um, uh, uh, those grasses, ungrazed, can get as high as your knees, even taller. And we have some specialty birds that breed in those. We've got, um, well, of course, scaled quail, Montezuma quail, Bottlerized sparrow and Cassin sparrow are, are the biggies down there. And they're all singing. And so that's what I love about the monsoon season in southeastern Arizona grasslands. Is, and, and our Lillian, now uh, Chihuahuan meadowlark, has been broken out as its own species. Oh, I didn't they're know that. breeding and singing. And so when we get the... Um, monsoon and all the grasses are green it's just an amazing landscape and the birds are singing and the cats and sparrows do their little courtship dance where they flutter up and come back down <laughs> it's nice. just very cool yeah to, to be absolutely crystal clear southeast arizona during monsoon is an absolute naturalist paradise yeah. i mean well, it's yeah. wonderful <sighs> just don't get enough of that place yeah Oh, all right. Um, and you know, you, you talk about the desert being lost on some folks. It is absolutely not lost on me. I love the Sonoran Desert. Um, I mean, again, I get excited about it all, but the Sonoran Desert is a special place. Um, and you know, just just having the iconic saguaro there, you know, is in my opinion, it makes it more beautiful than any other desert on Earth. But and, and the biodiversity is insane. Um, I remember getting my first long-eared owls in desert washes, you know, that were migrating through. Um, And owls are are a lot of times pretty tame, so you can get a really good look at them, you know, you can get up close to them. But uh, And I'll also say that 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 first trip I did back, again, 30 years ago, I think I was was in Madera, that little campground in Madera Canyon, I think, anyway. And uh, we went looking for a pygmy owl. I'm sorry, forgive me, a null fowl. And, uh, you know, one one of the nice things about birding is when you're in that community, information flows freely. Um, so it's not like hunting or fishing where, where folks are not going to tell you their spots. Uh, birders are pretty generous, you know, because there's, there's yeah, all you're doing is going and looking at this bird and, and taking pictures. And, and that information is shared pretty freely if you're in that community. But so we heard about uh, 
a hollow in a tree where some elf owls were. And we sat and for a couple hours. And then right as it was getting too dark, we just saw a flash of movement come out of that hole. So that was our elf owl. A little bit disappointed, but we countered it because we knew what it was. We go back to uh, to our camp and we crack a couple beers and we're sitting there on the, on the picnic table and there's a branch right above our heads. And uh, a little elf owl comes down and lights on that branch. I mean, literally just a foot above our head. And we're just blown away. Then another one flies in. And then they do this little thing where they kind of like, you know, I can't call it kiss, but they turn, they lock beaks together. And, you know, they have this little interaction and then flew away. And I was just, yeah. ah, wow, you know, on level 10. Such an amazing that, little that bird. That reminds me of us uh, going on a little expedition up into the Pinulenos mm-hmm. and stopping at one of the lower campgrounds. And there are two Mexican spotted owls in their day roost right next wow. to each other, the pair. That's fantastic. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. So many good experiences have out there. So let's, you know, like any endeavor, it can be taken to the nth degree and cost thousands and thousands of dollars. But I think one of the nice things about birding is it really doesn't, you don't have to do that. Can we talk a bit about, you know, folks that want to get in birding, get involved in birding or start where to start, what equipment they need, kind of how to mm-hmm. go about it? Yeah. I mean, bird, birding is one of those things where it's, it's a little bit like photography, right? Like you can, you can, there's different levels and you can sort of, there's almost sky's the limit on how much you can spend, but you can actually get into birding with very, very little investment. And one of the biggest, I think, improvements that's happened in getting birding equipment is uh, smartphone mm-hmm. apps. So you can get some of these apps and some of them are just totally free. One, one of which is Merlin from uh, Cornell. Audubon has a very nice uh, birding app as well. So there's some birding apps you can get that are free that help you identify birds you're seeing in your yard or just, you know, wherever you go. And Merlin also has this new feature where it's called Sound ID, where you can tell it to listen. And if you're hearing a bird, it'll try to identify it for you using AI. So that's pretty cool, especially if you have this like, what's this bird in my yard I hear all the time? Uh, Merlin as an app, uh, which you can download for free, is really uh, can help you solve that problem then show you photos of the bird, that kind of thing. So it's really... The, the technology's really improved. Now, there's a few apps that you have to pay for, but even then, they're not, they're not that expensive. They cost as much as maybe a book would. There's tons of field guides out there. But I think one of the biggest equipment pieces one needs for birding is binoculars. And binoculars can get very, very pricey into the thousands of dollars. But you can get binoculars that are in the you know less than $100 range, and those are not very good. But, the, but if you get binoculars that are a little bit more expensive, if you get into like the $150, $200 range for binoculars, the difference is yeah. incredible, incredible. Those are very, they can be very, very good binoculars up to about, you know, less than $200. And the difference between like an $85 pair of binoculars and a $200 pair of binoculars is huge. And it's, it's wider, much wider difference between a $200 pair of binoculars and a $3,000 yeah. pair of binoculars, which you can certainly spend on a pair of like if, if you can't afford them i would offer the suggestion bins. of don't look through them because because then you'll know what you're missing yes and, and you'll you'll feel terrible yes. after that but but the improvement the sort of level of improvement um is wider from you know yeah. less than 100 to 200 versus you know then up to 3,000. no those are very nice there's a reason people do buy those but you can do quite well with the uh yeah. Yeah, kind of the uh, the entry level on some of these bigger brands like Nikon, Vortex, um, they're very um, practical and useful, especially for someone who's backyard birding mm-hmm. or just getting into birding and trying to figure out 
what the bird is in that tree that's 50 feet away. And quite frankly, you don't want the high power. You probably want yeah. the seven to eight power because mm -hmm. mostly what you're going to be looking at is real close. So that wider field of view is helpful um, for close birds. You get up to the 10 power or more and they're not good for birding unless you're kind of, I use 10 powers because I'm mm -hmm. trying to dial in that hawk up on the ridgeline, but um, they're not as good as yeah. a nice eight power that will have the bigger field of view and also focuses closer. Mm -hmm. So you can actually use those binoculars to start identifying and... other things like mm -hmm. dragonflies and butterflies. Yeah. You, no. Yeah, Tice is totally right. And a pair of eight powers too. They're they're easier to use. They're easier to get on the bird. They're easier to you know see the mm -hmm. bird you're trying to see through them. If you get you know ten or higher, it can be really difficult actually to get your target in mm -hmm. view. And those higher power ones are also more prone to sort of shake. Right. You know, where you're trying to see, and then if your hands should move at all, it starts you know shaking. So I I always recommend something like you know eight by eight by thirty two, mm -hmm. eight by forty two pair of binoculars, and all the major optics companies do have a good pair of sort of entry level, less expensive yeah. pair. Um, so what I tell range. folks is if you get a less expensive pair, well, first of all, check the binocular at the store. And, and there, most of the binoculars now are the Poro prism, which is the straight barrel. Mm -hmm. And um, the cheaper they are, the more distortion they have around the edges. So if you just, set the binoculars on a steady platform or a tripod at the store and just look at something like the sign on the wall and just put your eyes across it. And if you see a lot of distortion on the edges, that's going to bother you out in the field. So mm -hmm. you probably maybe want to spend a little more money yeah. so that you get that clear view across. Yeah. Um, the next thing that causes them to cost more is the coatings. Mm -hmm. And so the less expensive ones, if you leave them in your hot car and otherwise abuse them, yep. the coatings may start to deteriorate. So I tell folks, if you have a less expensive binocular, treat it like fine china, you know, put it back in its case, take good care of it. Don't let it get cooked in your car and that kind of thing. Yeah. Quite frankly, the Swarovskis, you can beat the heck out of them. And yeah. they're still going to be good. Plus, they got a lifetime guarantee. I've had mine rebuilt three times now. I've, I've got a small pair of field Swarovski. I used to have a larger pair, too. And unfortunately, they were stolen out of my car. Um, and I would never could afford to replace them. I use Vortex now for hunting more in the $500 range. But uh, that little pair of field glasses I have by Swarovski, um, they literally spent the night uh, in, in a hole in the river. Um, and I went back next morning and found them with some some right. scuba, or not scuba, but snorkeling equipment. So that's basically the difference. You're paying for that rugged durability right. and the life guarantee. And um, so, yeah, but a $300 pair of binoculars we'll taken care well. of yeah. will, will last you and be as yeah. good. And something I like to always tell new birders about binoculars is, is it can be, because uh, just some words of encouragement to new birders, is using binoculars can feel tricky and overwhelming at first. Um, 
but the more you do it, if you just stick with it, I think some people get discouraged because I can't, mm-hmm. I can't find the bird or they're having trouble with it, um, is sort of just practice, practice trying to get something that's not moving, like the top of a telephone pole or something, try to get something in the binoculars, do it multiple times. Another thing that I think can sometimes frustrate people is if they don't understand that binoculars have a diopter, which is an adjustment feature on the binoculars if your eyes are not totally mm-hmm. the same. So if, if one eye is stronger than the other or, you know, has a different focus ability, the diopter is something that adjusts. And if it's if it's incorrect, it can make, no matter what you do, it looks blurry through the binoculars. So knowing that your binoculars do have this adjustment, usually for the right eye, to sort of bring them into par, and that it just takes some practice and sort of getting used to the idea of holding your binoculars steady while you're trying to look through them. And also another mistake new birders often make is they try to, when they see a bird that they want to look at in the tree, they often will put binoculars to their eyes and then mm-hmm. try to find it. The better approach is to look at the bird with your eyes without binoculars and then raise the binoculars to your eyes. That'll work much better in trying to to, to get a look at that, that bird or object through the binoculars. So if anyone is out there having trouble with binoculars, just look up the idea of a diopter and how to adjust it and just give it a little more practice because I think once you get the hang of it, it really is this amazing thing where you see a bird at a distance and then suddenly you put binoculars on it and now that little brown verdin, Tice, has um, a bright mustard yeah. yellow face, which is just such a fun thing to see those beautiful details on a bird. I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, looking at the bird with your eyes and then bringing the binoculars up, not losing contact with that bird because I have that conversation with my little boy all the time. I'll be trying to show him something and he's looking somewhere off and the binoculars completely different trying to find it. But so that's, that's a really good tip. Um, and yeah, like you, Tice, I carry a 10, 10, uh, 10 by four, uh, 10 by 42s, I think. Um, but I, I don't recommend anyone for a pair of handheld binoculars to go above 10 power. I think eight power is probably more versatile, especially for, for birding and finding birds quickly in, in your glasses. But, and it is a learning curve, you know, but before you know it, 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 it'll be second nature and muscle memory and you'll, you'll be, you'll be on them every time. Right. I, I think one of the things worth talking about is how people can improve their skill sets. Mm-hmm. And, um, the Audubon chapters are really good at offering, uh, birding trips and more and more of the chapters are kind of adopting locations that are good birding places mm-hmm. and having family field trips in the morning. I know Tucson Audubon has stuff at Sweetwater all the time. Um, yes. uh, one of our chapters up here in Phoenix is at Gilbert Riparian all the time. Oh, These yeah. are great bird birding locations. And if you connect with your local Audubon chapter, then you can really have somebody point them out so you can start developing those skill sets. Right. And um, I really like the fact that they're doing a lot more of these family outings. So it's not just, you know, the older birders, it's the kids and everybody. Yeah. And those can be a lot of fun because the kids are busy going, Ooh, look at the dragonfly. And they're doing yeah. all sorts of more natural history, naturalist kind of stuff. Which right. Is cool. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, another great opportunity is the nature festivals. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have one coming up at the end of the month in the Verde Valley. And then Jenny can talk about the ones in Southeast Arizona. Yeah, yeah, there are, there are several actually. So um, there's a festival that happens twice a year out of Sierra Vista, the Southwest Wings Festival. And they're doing their spring fling 
Uh, it's pretty soon. It's right at the beginning of May is their spring festival. And then they do a summer festival, uh, usually the usually the kind of mid-August. And then uh, to capture those monsoon specialty birds and just the amazing monsoon abundance we get. And then uh, out of Tucson, Tucson Audubon does run the, the Southeast Arizona Birding Festival that uh, also happens in early August. That's, again, for those monsoon birds. Like, why would you hold a festival in August in Tucson? But it's actually great. The hotel rooms are pretty cheap, and uh, there's a lot of great birding to happen. And then in the winter, we have uh, a good festival down here. Uh, out of Wilcox, they do the um, the Wings Over Wilcox Festival in January every year. And that focuses on sandhill cranes, and but also looks for things like wintering raptors and wintering sparrows. So that's a really fun sort of community-based festival out of Wilcox every January. That's awesome. And then the other opportunity is to sign up for one of the Christmas bird counts. And we have many of them through the state. And um, the Christmas bird count coordinators are really good about bringing a new birder in and getting Mm -hmm. them with the right group so they can kind of get their feet wet. I've taken a lot of starter birders or folks that are new to this area that don't know our birds. And um, especially if they have a good camera, I want them. Yeah. Because <laughs> they can get yeah. the photograph of, are you sure that's a Cassin's finch? Yes, it is. Here's the photograph. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of... Uh, great conservation that happens in the birding community. Um, and I want to talk more, more about that. Um, but first, uh, the, to go along with, with optics, um, you know, I, I don't, I think we can kind of gloss over spotting scopes cause you know, mm-hmm. we're kind of talking about beginning birding here, but what about field guides? I know you mentioned, uh, apps and, and as my, my boss, Scott puts it, he's lo- losing the battle of becoming a grumpy old man. I, I feel the same way when it comes to technology and I feel like it should be hard knocks, you know, like when I was a kid, I'd go sit in a coffee shop and just pour through my bird guide, you know? But uh, right. do you have any field guides you'd recommend? Boy, uh, probably the um, National Geographic. Yeah. It, yeah, that's when I started that, on You this know, show. way back when it was the Golden Guide. Sure. And, and you know, my, my original Golden Guide is I have where I first saw the bird written into it. And it's all dog-eared from doing what you say, you know, flipping uh-huh. through it and basically memorizing all the mm-hmm. birds and and it's hard to do that with online apps so having that book in hand has some real value for getting started and knowing the birds and getting familiar with the way they're organized not by color mm-hmm. or shape but more by what family group they're in yeah. so all the hawks are together all the ducks are together the flycatchers are together and understanding the value of the distribution map. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at that map and you think it's, you know, an Eastern Kingbird, but yeah, probably not here, but it could be. And it just means you're going to have to put more energy into confirming that it's a rare bird rather than something that um, is more likely. Yeah. And I always mm-hmm. encourage people to. Confirm that it's the likely bird first before you go to the rare bird. Right. <laughs> Very good point, Thais. Another nice thing about field guides is, is there's a lot of variety. So I'd encourage people to sort of, if you're going to buy a field guide, 
sort of look at the different types and see what speaks to you. Some of them focused using mm -hmm. photos, photos of the birds. Many of them use illustrations and they have different sort of strengths and weaknesses and finding just what type you prefer. And, and the, the longer you're in birding, I feel like the more you acquire, right? So most birders have a bookshelf of different field guides and they all have sort of different strengths. And the, the Nat Geo one Tice mentioned is an illustration one with more traditional mm -hmm. kind of plates. The Sibley guide is illustrations as well, but always features the bird illustrated both you know, sitting in a normal sort of pose and then flying as well, because that can be key. Sometimes there's marks you only see when a bird is flying, like lesser goldfinch with the white patches and the wings, things like that. Um, so that could be good. Photo guides really can be what some people prefer. And if you're a new birder, the situation Tice mentioned with the range maps in terms of birds being birds, two birds in a field guide right next to each other. If you have a field guide for all of North America, two birds right next to each other can look incredibly similar. But then when you look at the maps, one occurs in the east and one occurs in the west. So that really can help figure out what you're looking at. So very new birders, I do encourage to get a field guide that is sort of limited to your area. So you can get field guides for birds yep. of Arizona, birds mm -hmm. of Southeast Arizona even. So that can really help make it less overwhelming for a new birder. But if it is too range restricted, like Southeast Arizona, it may not have, if you are seeing a rare bird that has wandered over from another region where it's more common, which does happen quite, you know, relatively frequently, that may not be in your book. So then you get another field guide that's for all of the West. And then you get another one that's for all of North America. So there's a lot of options sure. and choices for and people. And you get one that's just for warblers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or one just came out that's just for a pit and right. catchers. <laughs> That's brand new size. Well, just a, came out. a couple things that occur to me. One, like Tice mentioned, I don't like guides that are organized by color. I think all organ guides should be organized by family groups. That way, you can pick up any bird book, and when you're when you get comfortable with it, you can immediately go to that section on hawks, that section on warblers, um, and that's important. If you have a bird you're struggling to identify, you know you need to be able to. They're not going to sit around and wait for you. You know you got to be able to get to that that bird quickly in your book. So memorizing yeah. um, the structure um, and organization yeah. is very important. Also, for my personal preference. I've always been a fan of Sibley's guides. I like illustrations because they can show field marks that might not come through well in a photograph. There's a sophistication to the Sibley guide that is difficult for starter birders. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's like a little notch up. It's hard to explain, but it really focuses on, on field marks, uh -huh. which as you get good at birding, you understand the importance of paying attention to, is that a full eye circle or is it broken? Mm -hmm. Little subtleties. Sibley really deep dives into that. National Geo less so. Yeah. So um, that's a good it, point. It can be the, the Merlin app, I want to go back to its value mm -hmm. because it walks you through what shape is the bird. Yeah. Is the bird in the water? Is it perched? You know, what's it doing? And so then it gives you a list of possible birds in their photographs. Yeah. And, and that's not a bad way in conjunction with a field guide to kind of figure out what you might be looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just not really familiar with the apps. Um, I haven't done much with them, but. Yeah. Merlin's turning into one of my faves, especially since they've added the sound thing. Okay. I'll check it out. And, and the other, the other thing is these new phones, the, fo the, the, cameras on them yeah they're amazing are amazing yeah so people that are ranked beginners can get really good photographs of the right. bird they're looking at which you couldn't do before it's amazing yeah 
You know, one of the things that I like to see in a field guide is I like that range map right there on the same page as the bird. I know some of them organize where it's like you have to scroll back through to a certain page number yeah, to find a field guide. Yeah, the old Peterson. Yep. You know, here's the bird and then yeah. another section is the maps. I agree with you. Yep, yep. All right, well, so we got our binoculars, we got our field guide, um, and that's really all we need to get started and perhaps an app on the phone. I'm just being an old curmudgeon there. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you can get out and start identifying birds. You can do it right there in your own yard. Um, you can, you can, you know, go to a local city pond and you're going to get some new species there. So, I mean, it's super, super easy to get started. And yeah. like you mentioned before, Tice, one thing about conservation minded folks is they love to bring people into the fold. They love to educate people. They love to create new conservationists. Um, so there are no there are no roadblocks, you know, I mean, you can, you can jump in as quick as and go as deep as you want. Um, it's easy to do. There's a lot of great opportunities out there. Well, one of the things that Jenny and I are both kind of involved in, and this is happening elsewhere in the country is getting people involved in conservation oriented bird watching. Mm -hmm. So for instance, the Trogon surveys that Jenny organizes, um, the surveys of the desert birds in the Saguaro National Park. We're launching some survey efforts for pignon jay. And you don't have to be a talented birder to do a lot of this stuff because it's species specific and um, just getting people out. National Audubon has a thing called Climate Watch. And I think, Jenny, you've set up a few routes down there for the bluebirds. I have, yeah. And and so it's just a short list of species that are being monitored. Uh, nuthatches, bluebirds. I think they've added goldfinches now. And so, you know, a, a group of people can set up a survey route where they hike the same thing twice a year with stops. And then they survey for these birds and they put them into a data set that's managed by National Audubon. Yeah, and Audubon makes it so easy too because you just do it through eBird. And once you've set up the routes, they show up as personal locations on your eBird app. So then they can just literally do their five minute count at each of those locations from their phone, recording on their phone as they go. And one of the nice things about using eBird on your phone is it does keep track of where you are, what time it was, how long you were there, if you, you know, tell it to stop the survey when you're done. And that makes it really easy. And then you just share it with that National Audubon account within the app. And your data's in. So it's a phenomenally good way. Because if you're going to ask people to do sort of homework while they're having fun, you know, doing a bird survey while they're having fun, you have to make it pretty easy if you can. And certainly the easier you make it, the more people will do it. And that's, I think, been a really successful approach is because these apps have made it pretty easy to log data on the go, you can ask people to do this, these things while they're also having fun. And that's that's been really a big success, a big part of making, you know, community science, you know, citizen science work well with burning is one you have people with an enormously advanced skill set of identifying many bird species out there anyway looking at birds and if you can convince people to sort of just record what they're seeing even if it's just part of the time and ebird making that lovely mobile app which is free uh made that a lot easier to convince birders to record what they're seeing and hearing which really provides a huge amount of data while they're out there anyway doing their favorite activity with their really advanced skill set. You know, I, I, I go on and on all the time about the 
huge amount of good conservation work that happens in the hunting and angling community that I think a lot of folks that are not part of that community might not know about. But I, I, I think there's something to that tangible connection to the wildlife that makes people want to be more involved. Um, and in the kind of non-consumptive sectors, I would say that birding is probably the one exception to that. Um, maybe not one exception, but it is a, an exception to that because there is a ton of good conservation work happening in the birding community and a lot of citizen science. Um, and I know we've been talking about it, but but I'd like to talk about a little bit more some of the opportunities uh, for folks that either are birding or want to get into birding that might be able to uh, contribute. There's there are some pretty easy ones, and one of the, I think the best entry level ones is the one Tice mentioned with the Christmas bird counts. They do happen uh, in the winter. They happen nationwide, internationally even, and you just find out what the Christmas bird count circles are your are in your area. Reach out to the organizer of that circle, which will be posted um, probably on the local Audubon website, and Reach out to them, tell them you're a new birder, and they can assign you to a team. So that's a really nice way for sort of new newbie birders or people who are just kind of curious about birding to to get involved and to go birding out with a team of people and kind of see what that's like. And da- data is recorded out there. That is, uh, gosh, I think it's the longest running community science project uh, ever. It's still going. Yeah, and that's been well over 100 years that's been happening now. But there's just a lot of different ways you can get involved in community science. I mean, one, of course, anything you put in eBird, you are now contributing to community science. You do a yard list, you're you're contributing. Um, you're out there gardening and you're just keeping track of the birds you're seeing while you're out there. You've done it. You've done community science. But there's organized efforts too. Like Tucson Audubon leads uh, a lot of different sort of bird survey opportunities. I do some species-specific ones like LFL surveys in uh, April or May and then trogons in uh, May. And those are ones where we're really focusing on a single bird. So they're suitable for different levels of bird ID skills. And then we do some sort of all species routes too that people can sign up for. And that means you have to be able to identify all this, all the, the expected species in that region because you're recording everything you're seeing and hearing either within a certain distance or within on a point for a certain amount of time. So there's just a lot of different ways to get involved. Even things just like using iNaturalist. You see a bird, you get a photo of it, or you see a cool flower or an insect or anything, and you snap a photo and you can put it into the iNaturalist app. And it only it tries to identify it for you. And then it also puts that that fact that you, you're citing in there into a large database. So technology has really made this a lot easier, but there's a lot of different ways to get involved in some community science projects. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you what, I mean, do you, do you think we've covered it pretty well here? What have, what have we left out? Birding's really fun. I do encourage people to get into it. It has a really supportive uh, community. I hardly ever meet anyone who's not totally pleasant and supportive and birding. I mean, they're out there. There's always a couple, but, (laughs) but it's a, it's a really encouraging nurturing community. So if you're interested in getting into birding, I think Tyson's advice was really good. Try to find some bird walks in your area, um, your local Audubon chapter, or sometimes just like down here in the Tucson area, like Pima County offers bird walks through some of the County parks, things like that. There should be some bird walk opportunities that you can find with some Googling in your, in your community and just go on a few bird walks and see how see how it goes. And, you know, birders are usually very, very good about if there's someone who's less experienced, sort of mm-hmm. showing them the ropes and sh- helping them explain why that bird is what it is, what they saw that they know it's a faint of pepla or, you know, it's a very, it's a very encouraging community. And if you're interested at all in birds or nature, I do encourage people mm-hmm. to just sort of try it, get your feet wet, see if birding's for you, because I think you'll yeah. find that yeah. it is. Yeah, it's an absolute blast. The thing blast. I tell folks, too, is one of the keys to birding is to stop and listen. And um, honestly, 
that's a whole other side to bird walk. So I like twitching, which is what they call it in England, because it's a better description because so much of my bird detection is auditory. Mm-hmm. So I will hear that Anna's hummingbird doing its courtship flight. Yeah. I'll hear the burden singing very loudly or the fussing noises of a pair of towhees before I ever see them. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's another pathway to get people interested in birds in the natural world is to tune their ears to those natural sounds. Yeah. And taking, that's almost like taking a moment of, um, peaceful rest and not listening to the noises of urban suburban life mm-hmm. and hearing that bird in the distance like right now there's a curveville thrasher outside the door that i can hear and i do that in the morning i will just listen who are the birds in my yard this morning mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll add that, you know, there are species that you need to hear them to identify. I, I had an epidinex flycatcher show up here last spring, and I never nailed it down. I, I, I mean, you, you can't. And then, uh, you know, I'm hoping he comes back this spring because I want to figure it out. You know, I'll put him on my yard list. But um, so, yeah, it's very important. I remember spending just hours upon hours pouring over yeah. the old DV, CDs of like a birding by ear. And, and I think Stokes had a, had a series. Um, right. I'm sure I'm sure there's better ways to do it now, but, but yeah, it's a, and it, it's a great, just a great skill set for any naturalist. You know, I mean, we, we live in this beautiful, unbelievably diverse state. Um, and, you know, I've been here 11 years now and I will never run out of different aspects of natural history to explore in Arizona. Um, I just, yeah, get out there and enjoy it. Yep. Well, and you can create, a haven in your own yard if you want to. Absolutely you can. Yeah, Which there's so many layers. what I also like about it. Birds, the butterflies, mm-hmm. the dragonflies. Yeah, you know, I've got stuff. one big old giant pile of snow left in my yard and it's right in the middle of my native garden. So I can't wait for it to melt so I can get back to that. Okay. But, well, listen, I want to thank both of you for, for being here today um, and talking about this. And, and not only that, I want to thank you for the important conservation work you do. It, it matters. It makes a difference. It's important. Awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Well, with that, um, yeah, maybe next year we can we can get together and do a do a more advanced, you know, sure episode. Awesome. We could get Richard involved in it. Right. Oh my gosh, yeah. So my partner, yeah, he's he's, he's he does he's a birding guide. His whole job always is just he gets to take people out birding, and that's what yeah, he does for a living. Bad. So fun. Yeah, I've never been guided by him, but I remember being at the Patton Center one time, and Richard had. A one-on-one with somebody. I'm just sitting at the next bench listening to him. He's just delightful. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a very friendly guy too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah he's, he's really fun. He's well suited for that kind of job. Him talk about the natural world. He's got a nice. Well, great. Let's get him on the next one, and maybe uh, maybe I could uh, we could all meet down there in Tucson and do some birding as well. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be lovely. Well, thank you both, and uh, I appreciate it. All right, take care. Well, there you have it. Um, A good, solid, and thorough introduction to birding or bird watching, whatever you want to call it. Uh, It is a fantastic endeavor. If you want to go 
all in and go crazy like some of the folks we've talked about um, or you just want to do it passively when you're out enjoying other other recreational opportunities in our great outdoors here in Arizona. It is a great thing to do. It is a great way to broaden your your knowledge of natural natural history here in our state. It is a great way to become a better outdoorsman, a better naturalist. So if you have not already, I encourage you to pick up a pair of binoculars, pick up a field guide, start studying your birds, get out there, enjoy the spring weather, and uh, just have a great time. Don't forget, this podcast is made possible by the Arizona Wildlife Federation. The Arizona Wildlife Federation is 100 years old this year, and uh, that's a big deal, let me tell you. If you would like to support the work we do, the work we do protecting wildlife, protecting habitat, protecting our public lands and our access to them, please consider joining up at the link in the show notes. With a membership, you will also get our quarterly publication, but more importantly, you will be supporting the great work that we do for wildlife in our state. So thank you for listening and we will see you next time.